everyone. Welcome back to the Lily Grace Lifestyle Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about therapy, mental health, and all the things when it comes to the landscape of your mind. <laughs> so today's guest is actually a past client of mine, thanks to Francis, who referred me to Michelle Cutillo. And thank you so much for coming on today. I'm really excited to have you. It's a real um, privilege and honor to be here. Great. And a question that I start off with is what defines your lifestyle? A centralized theme, um, which I think I noticed is like sort of part of your mission statement here too, is balance. I think if I had to like choose one thing that defines my lifestyle, it's really trying not to live on like too far of one extreme. Mm. Um, I really, um, I try to have a balanced approach and I think I'm sure you're going to ask me like specifically what that looks like. So I'll give a couple examples. Um, so I'm a working mom. I have two little kids, a, an almost two and a six-year-old. Um, mm. so part of my balanced approach to like my work-life balance is that I choose to run my practice three days a week. Um, so I'm open Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So I can be home with my kids on Mondays and Fridays. Um, I know not every working mom has that opportunity. Um, but for me, I feel like I'd be like really out of balance if I was out of the home five days a week. Um, and then like, I don't know, I'm somebody who just like likes to indulge in the pleasures of life. I think like what's life without pleasure. So I really, you know, I like a really creamy um, fettuccine dish and maybe like a fancy <laughs> glass of wine. And I know that if I like indulged in that every day, um, that probably wouldn't be really healthy for me on a variety of levels. So I, <laughs> you know, I try to like stay active and work out and like do all the things that are good for like my physical and mental health, but not to like deprive myself of pleasure either. That's great. And I'm learning that too recently. It's okay to take pleasure in things. Like I feel like I was such a workaholic, like maybe three years ago before COVID. And I'm learning yeah. that it's okay to have fun and indulge and just do the things that you love and then balance it with the healthy things too, or eat the things that you love or things like that. So I think that's really important. And I think a lot of people can connect to that. And do you mind sharing for people who don't know you a little bit about your background? And actually, I don't know much about your background either. I know you're my client, but I would love to hear kind of how you grew up and all of that. So it's funny, I listened to a little bit of Carly's podcast. I was like curious, like how much she self-disclosed because there is sort of this right. unspoken rule in um, a lot of mental health that you have to be really mindful of like what you're sharing about yourself. Mm, um, okay. For a variety of reasons. But that being said, I also, I want to be um, vulnerable and I think it would be like a really boring podcast. So I've just sort of decided that this is back to my balance too, of like, I, yeah. I want to share um, my story, um, but also be mindful of like oversharing as well. So um, basically my story is that I'm not from New Hampshire. I was born in Connecticut. I moved around a lot um, per my dad's job as a software engineer, um, but I mostly grew up in Northern New Jersey. So mm -hmm. I was there for like the majority of my childhood. Um, and when I finished high school, I went to Boston University for my undergraduate education. Um, and like most 18 year olds, I had no idea what I wanted to do what I wanted to study, like, I just think it's a really big life um, 
shift at that age. So I, at the time, I was taking a lot of psychology courses. Um, so I knew I was interested in psychology. I even interned. I had like a paid internship in a psychology lab for a PhD student. Um, oh. And despite all of this, I decided to follow my heart and major in English literature because mm. my joy of reading was just so pervasive. And I think maybe I was a little overwhelmed with the college experience and I wanted to do something like safe that I knew I was good at. Um, looking back, I think being able to like listen to a narrative and like hear patterns mm. and themes has totally. really helped me as a therapist. But anyhow, so back in my undergraduate, I did not study anything really related to mental health. Um, after college, I did go out west. So I lived in San Francisco. Oh. I sort of launched as a young adult um, in the Bay Area. And nice. I think I like took the first job I was offered, which was a headhunter, um, mm. also known as a tech recruiter, which is like a really common job in um, San Francisco. Right. So I... I ended up working really closely with people, like helping them navigate job searches, mm -hmm. um, which I really enjoyed that like relational piece to my job. But at the end of the day, it was a sales job. And there's a lot of like things that are involved with closing the deal that, yep, you know, I know. <laughs> my values and my ethics. So when I relocated back to New England, I must have been in my mid twenties now. I was sort of at a career shift where I, knew I wanted to go back to school. Um, I was now more curious in counseling, um, but I was mm -hmm. also curious about teaching because of my English literature background. Mm -hmm. So I did some volunteer work, I took some courses, and long and short, I ended up deciding to pursue a master of social work at um, UNH. Nice. So that, so that was sort of like my journey that led me into the, the mental health. Wow, that's amazing. I love that you've kind of been all over the country. I want to start off with what are some interesting statistics about mental health or therapy that people would be surprised about? That is such a good question. And you almost had me stumped with that one. Because um, I actually don't know like a tremendous amount of statistics. Um, but the first one that came to mind that I just want to share, because I think I always go back to this when it comes to like stigmatizing mm. chronic mental illness. Um, the one that I had learned in graduate school was that 90% of individuals with like chronic and severe mental illness never become violent ever in their lifetime. Wow. And I think that um, surprised me because there is this notion, especially with people with, you know, maybe like a schizophrenia or like a mood disorder that has a psychosis to it, they might look sort of like alarming or threatening. Um, on the street per se and i just sort of blew my mind that the statistics or the odds of people acting out in a violent way are actually like really low wow um, so that was one thing i wanted to share and then the other one and i hope i get the statistic correct was that um when it comes to therapeutic outcomes and successful outcomes and treatment mm -hmm. that 80 percent of the um work or the factor that sort of determines a good outcome in therapy is actually the therapeutic relationship with your therapist. Mm -hmm. So the other 20% is sort of the skills and the knowledge and the 
um, pieces of information and, and training that the therapist is coming into treatment with, and that it's not the most important, not nearly the most important piece for like a successful outcome. Huh. And um, that is so interesting. And I, a hundred percent believe the second fact that you said because even in sales and business it's all about relationship and people can love the product but if they don't love you <laughs> then it's like not gonna work at least in my industry so it's just so interesting how psychology and just being able to read people and understand people and connect with people even on this podcast it really matters for a successful outcome so i love that and the first fact that you said that does surprise me Yes, 90%. <laughs> but that's good. What are the most common misconceptions about therapy? And First and foremost, there's this notion that people who go to therapy are somehow weak, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're, I don't know. Emotional or? They right, are too emotional or not yeah. strong enough. Like they can't like pull their bootstraps up by themselves. So um, mm -hmm. So there's like a weakness involved in asking for help. And I, as somebody, you know, who sits on the opposite chair of somebody who's coming in in that really vulnerable state mm -hmm. and just say, can that like the truth is so far from that, that it takes so much bravery, um, so much courage to sit down with a perfect stranger you've never mm -hmm. met before and sometimes speak out loud things, thoughts, feelings, memories that you've actually never perhaps ever shared before. So that's like yeah. a misconception. Another misconception is that um, I'm going to tell you all the answers and give you this really directive <laughs> advice immediately. Hmm. Um, and that's actually something that even in like the beginning of the therapeutic process that I'm really straightforward about with my clients and explain that like I'm here to provide um, a framework and I'm certainly here to support you in a decision balance but at the end of the day like these are your life choices mm. not my life choices and like you're the one living the outcome of them um so I think people do think you're therapists and maybe there are some therapists out there that can just say really directly um this is what you should do um but I I don't hmm. see I, just being a person that likes to have directive like feedback that would be so interesting because i've never been to therapy but i'm so open to it and i i think it's so important to learn about i think a lot of people weren't really taught like how to listen to their instinct how to trust their instinct no you're so right but i'm um, certainly like if there's a safety issue or something that yeah like, um of that nature then i'd say that like I will be more directive, um, but for the most part, like these are really tricky decisions to navigate. Like I've been mm -hmm. unhappily married for 30 years, Michelle, like what do I do? Like this, that's not an easy- No, it's not like you do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's um, a lot to uncover. Yeah, for right. sure. And then the other thing that actually I forgot to mention that I, I felt like was important where people think that when they come into therapy, there's going to be like a really quick fix you know, mm. they've been suffering for so long and right. feeling, feeling poorly. So like they've made the decision to come to counseling and they're really eager to feel better. And actually what happens sometimes is sometimes you end up feeling a little worse mm. before you feel better because you start okay. sort of uncovering um, some of the things that might have been too hard to sort of sit with on your own. Mm. Um, and also it takes 
time to learn skills about how to manage. Right, right, for sure. Just like anything, even when it comes to physical injury, when people go to physical therapy or the chiropractor, like I feel not so great the day after the chiropractor, but the time after that is better. So you kind of have to put in the work and the time, I think. Right. For people like me who have never gone, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to a therapy session or two or three and then I'll feel great. (laughs) But like, you're right. It's a process. How would you describe the mental health landscape during this time currently? I want to preface that I, my lens and perception of mental health is very specific to like Mm. a small corner of the earth. (laughs) And so I just want to like clarify for anyone listening I don't know, outside of New England or even outside of like rural New Hampshire, Mm. um, that it's obviously might look different in other places. Mm. From my purview, um, my, the biggest thing I'm seeing really grace is just like lack of resources. Um, Mm. And I don't think I really noticed it until I became uh, my own business owner and launched my own private practice. But what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of people out there who want counseling Mm. who are looking for counseling and just simply cannot find a provider um, Mm. for a number of reasons. And the first reason being that community mental health centers are flooded and inundated um, because there's 10 of them throughout New Hampshire. The one in our area in Laconia is on like a four or five month wait list (gasps) if they're even taking um, a new client. So, um, so we're just seeing there's a lot more pressure on the private and group private practices. Um, mm-hmm. And that everyone's full. So I just like, if I'd have to say one thing, I think that people are wanting support and looking for support, um, but having a really hard time accessing it. Yeah. And what do you, what's your advice for those people? Because I know some people who were looking for a therapist, but are like, yeah, they're all booked up. And I'm like, really? But you're right. <laughs> Right. I mean, so I think, and it's not just that they're booked. I think there's a couple other things I'm noticing in this demographic um, for private practitioners. One, I think when COVID started, which was a wonderful thing, a lot of people went to strict telehealth. Mm-hmm. So they got rid of their offices, which made total sense at the time. I mean, it's a huge overhead of an expense. Um, but now I'm finding that people really want to be seen in person. Mm-hmm. And I'm having a I'm finding therapists, like it's sort of like probably a 50-50 mix, um, but there's a lot of people who are still exclusively telehealth and that's just not a great fit for everyone. And the other theme I'm seeing is that a lot of therapists are only accepting on private pay. Mm. Um, so what that means is that you're paying out of pocket right. for a rate that your health insurance um, isn't going to help you cover. Mm. Um, so... There's a lot of like systemic things that are involved in this, but I think that's contributing to um, people having a hard time finding an in-person provider. I mean, I already feel like there's been progress in terms of this generation coming into adulthood, being a lot more like open and Mm -hmm. um, just to reduce some of that like shame and stigma. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. On another note, though, it's kind of interesting because, like, at least on social media and stuff, I feel like some people, like, might overshare. I feel like there's a balance, like what you were saying. Like, let's not push everything down, but let's not share with the, the whole world. 
just like it's an interesting perspective because I do think people should be more open about it. Like on this podcast, I before my breakup, I didn't really have any therapists on here and I didn't really talk a lot about mental health. But I think it's so important to especially when I was going through that hard time to show like it's okay to be a little bit vulnerable and share a little bit personal life with people to have them relate to you. But I think the social media piece is like a really important one. It, as you said, as much as it's important to be vulnerable and share, it's sort of like, how are we sharing? And right. what's our expectation by putting something like really sensitive and vulnerable, like into the stratosphere? Um, like, what is our need? Like, what are we expecting to get in return? Mm. Um, and I think, frankly, there's like a lot of risk in putting something really vulnerable out there because you're can't really control like a lot of people have a lot of connections on social media like Mm. the type of feedback you're going to be getting um or it could be like a really empty feeling if you put something out there that then's not really garnering a lot of attention then it it could exacerbate a stressor um yeah so I, I think social media is a tricky yeah oh for sure I was just curious because like it's just so interesting to see different generations kind of share their emotions on there in different ways Um, there's a lot of misinformation too Lily Grace now that we're talking about this I think like even like the adolescent group there could be like a TikTok video oh I know that talks about like the criteria of a certain diagnosis so then we have a lot of like self-diagnosing going on without sort of the um filter of like talking to somebody who is trained to yeah. be able to squeeze out. For sure. <laughs> What's not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The next question is what has being a therapist taught you about yourself as a person? So I love my job a lot. Let me just say that. I think being a therapist has taught me how much I really thrive on human connection. Mm. Um, how important that is for me, um, how interested I am in human behavior. Um, I think being a caretaker and a nurturer is a big part of my identity in a lot of ways. Um, but I think being a therapist, it just, it made me realize how much that social and relational piece is really important, but also really fills up my cup in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think being a therapist, I mean, it's taught me so much, but one of the things that came up when you had asked me this, um, it has really, I mean, first of all, you have to practice what you preach. Right? Oh, for like, sure. It's, yeah. It's really hard to sit and like give somebody a lot of ideas and um, skills and stuff <laughs> without using them yourself. Yep. Um, I think when you're a therapist, you sit with a wide, wide range of intense feelings, intense emotions, and just intense states. And I think being a therapist has taught me to be able to hold that space for people and to um, support them, but not necessarily get so sucked into their emotional feeling that then I can't Mm -hmm. be able to create that structure. So that's helped me in a lot of areas of my life, (laughs) my (laughs) personal life to like seeing like the grumpy front desk person at your doctor's office. Oh, right. You know? So like there's so many different times where it can be really easy to get sort of um, pulled in. Yes. And I want to be careful how I'm saying this because it's like, of course, I'm experiencing 
it and I'm um, empathizing, but I think if you're talking to somebody and they start like crying with you or like meeting you at the intensity where you're at, it can be like really unhelpful. Yeah, for sure. And just relating it to my life, like what I've learned is that um, when friends reach out to you when they're in a hard place, or I reach out to friends when I'm in a hard place, you reach out to that person because you want to get on their emotional level and vibration and you don't want them coming down to your level and being just as negative and just as sad because then you're both going to feel worse. So I think it's really great that as a friend, we're able to do that and be that type of person for the people around us because they know that you're on a, per se, maybe happier emotional state than they are. So we're able to lift them up with us. So taking my perspective on this, I know it's not exactly the same because I'm not a therapist. Although sometimes I feel like I am. No, I think it's really, it's a perfect way to relate to this type of work and how important it is to be able to have some of those boundaries. But I also, I can't not answer the question by saying that like clients come in this room with with, like so much of their own, like innate resilience and skills. And I actually learn, like I physically learn stuff from my clients. Like for instance, I have this app that I use called Breathe, B-R-E-E-T-H-E. It's like a meditative app, but I have some insomnia and I, I know for a fact that it was a client of mine. who had brought that into the space and was saying how helpful it was for him. Mm-hmm. So I think that it goes back to even a misconception that like, I'm this like knower and I'm this <laughs> expert and I'm, I have all this to share. Like it's such a collaboration really great because my clients come in with like a wealth of their own knowledge and skills that I actually take home with me. So, yeah. Um, I really like that. Yeah, for sure. It is a collaboration. And when people are going through a really tough time in their life, what are some strategies that you use to help them? So we use so many different strategies and it's so individual um, to the person, like what they're experiencing. But if I had to just like break it down to sort of like a, a foundational piece of what I do, it's really like self-soothing and self-regulation because that's the task. It's like, we, we might not have created the problems that we're dealing with. And a lot of times we haven't, Mm -hmm. um, but it's still our job to figure out how to tolerate and manage what's coming up for us. Um, So I think like a big piece of all of my work really revolves around self-regulation. And I'm sure you're like, well, what does that look like, Michelle? Um, So a lot of what I do is really rooted in a cognitive behavioral approach. And I know that's like a really big, fancy jargony word, but it's really like just listening to the narratives in our mind Mm -hmm. and starting to really pay attention to what we're saying and how we're saying about it. So when somebody's like suffering, I want to know like what are you saying like what are the tapes that are on um, Mm, repeat on repeat and it really helps me figure out like where they are getting stuck so you know a lot of the themes I see in terms of like our inner narratives is like for instance because I could give you like 20 examples that we don't have time for but (laughs) one would be just like the whys you know like I see a lot of people coming in like why is this happening to me why did the person treat me this way yep which leaves us really stuck because like we can go down such a rabbit hole of the why and sometimes oh God. we know the why and sometimes we don't. And like, sometimes I can help people develop insight into like why this problem is arising, but it's not going to change the how 
which is like, how mm-hmm. are we going to um, move through this? How are yeah. we going to get unstuck? So that's like one narrative, just for an example, but I wanted to provide just like one more in terms of like um, anxiety, because I think a lot of people come in with anxiety disorders. So a lot yeah. of anxious thought patterns are around the unknowns. So I think it's human nature to like sort of think about all the different scenarios that could play out in our life because we want to know like what's going to happen. And a lot of times we're not comfortable not knowing. Mm. Um, So if that's the narrative that's going on, are we going down the what ifs paths? Um, Then we sort of look at, is there an actionable step that I can take to gain some clarity around this? And if there's not, then like, how am I gonna tolerate some of these unknowns? Yeah. so I know what was your initial question? How do we get through a tough time? But I think a lot of my work with helping somebody get through a tough time is, is really figuring out how they're thinking about it. Um, a lot of times the lens that we're thinking about something doesn't always serve us. For sure. I A couple of things there. I think you're 100% right when you say it's kind of like, what are we playing on repeat every day in our heads? How are we talking to ourselves? I'm reading this book that my podcast guest gave me. It's called Buddha Mind or something like that. And it's kind of about Buddhism and how you should start like treating the world and treating yourself. And basically they are saying, if you wouldn't say it to a friend, don't say it to yourself. If you wouldn't say it to your daughter or your mom or your dad, don't say it to yourself. Like we are so hard on ourselves. And I think it's so important to kind of have that inner narrative be a positive one, especially when you're going through a hard time. And it's, it's so hard to do that. And it is hard to do. And I think people are like, Michelle, I, I can't, like, these are so ingrained in me. Right. So it could be that whatever self-deprecating thing you're saying is going to be that like knee-jerk response Mm. and noticing it and then trying to reframe or self-soothe or say, okay, Mm. I'm noticing that I'm being really hard on myself. Like how I redirect. It's basically like you have to train your brain. It's Mm -hmm. so true. Like it takes a lot of practice. Oh, for sure. Just like anything, um, like learning a new sport or riding a bike or cooking or anything, you it's like a practice. It's almost at least for me religious. (laughs) And the other thing that I wanted to say was when you were saying people come in with a lot of whys, like why is this happening? Why did they break up with me? Why am I getting a divorce? All these different things that a lot of people can relate to, and me too. So I was on this Zoom call with Elizabeth Gilbert, the Eat Pray Love author and it was so cool and she was saying oh yeah it was so cool she was saying a very similar thing (laughs) um about the why like she was like no one asked me a question that starts with why she said start asking how or when or where and because why there's a lot of pressure on that it's like why did this happen to me why 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 but she's like take that off the table stop asking yourself why and start asking how or where or when because that kind of alleviates the pressure of having to know every single thing <laughs> also, I think it gives you a sense of agency because yes. when you're in the why like I think it can be really easy to get into sort of this victim state mm. like these are happening to me yes um, but when you're shifting to the how like I think it gives you it's an empowering sense of like what can I do to help myself feel better to to navigate through this like really difficult um thing that I'm dealing with and I also should say too that I think naturally people um have figured out 
in their own survival, like how to um, to tolerate a bad time and like probably like unproductive ways, which we all right. do, like coming and detaching, whether it's drugs or alcohol or food or media or shopping addictions. Like there's all these things <laughs> that I think we do to escape. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the work I do in here is trying to figure out like how to manage without escaping. Mm, okay. Yeah. And not to say there's not a healthy distraction because I think there is a time and a place to say like, I need to take a break from thinking or dealing with this. But if that's like our only tool in our toolbox to kind of just numb and mm. detach, um, then we're not really equipped with figuring out how to tolerate a bad feeling or a bad situation. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask if there is a healthy escape versus an unhealthy escape. And I guess we shouldn't use the word escape because we're, we don't want to escape. Right. <laughs> well, I think it's a little just, it's distract and I okay. think there is time and a place. And then there's perhaps this goes back to balance too, right? Mm -hmm. Like that it's okay to unplug and it's okay to um, take your mind off of things, but if it's causing problems in your life, if it's causing problems like in your relationships or your ability to get up and function and go to work, like then that is, un you know, mm. and obviously I think certainly there's healthier outlets than others. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And when it comes to relationships, how do you help people navigate them? Is it hard not to kind of look at your own relationships and give advice from that? Like, how do you kind of give objective advice? First of all, I think that relationships come up in every single session and every single case that I work with, whether it's your relationship with yourself, mm -hmm. relationship with a partner, relationship with your boss, with a family member, um, right. it can cause a lot of distress um, navigating relationships. So I think it depends on what's going on. Um, but a lot of the work that I do with people is figuring out how to have a voice and advocating for needs within the relationship um, so that they can be heard and they're not shutting down the other person. So really a lot of, I, I provide a lot of um, communication strategies. Mm. I do a lot of like real world examples of like how I would phrase something so that, um, so I think at the end of the day, people want connection and they want yes. closeness in these relationships, but, but then they do things to push somebody away or to shut them down. So I'll give like a really quick example. Um, and I'm sure you've heard like non-aggressive communication strategies, but like, let's say for instance, you're in a romantic relationship, your partner um, doesn't take out the trash and you <laughs> out the trash and now you're building up like anger and resentment about this i mean this is i mean because i do think division of labor is like a huge source of yeah a lot of um, oh so true relationships but anyhow so like the inclination might be to say because now that you've been stewing and marinating on this and you're angry you know then now, now you're going to explode so when you see the person you might say like i'm so tired of always taking out the trash like whatever you're going to say, like, if you were less lazy or if you cared about me more, you would do this thing, right? And then, like, the other person can obviously get defensive because now, yep. like, you're attacking their ego and their sense of self. So um, so I try to give strategies for letting 
to communicate yourself, but letting it land. So one mm. thing I use a lot is this thing called the Oreo cookie. And I feel like they use this a lot in like business management. So you've probably heard of this a lot, but the, the philosophy is the chocolate is sort of the diffuser. It's sort of the yeah. way to start the conversation so that the person doesn't get defensive. Like the vanilla is the, the meat of what you want mm -hmm. to communicate. And then sort of like you wrap it up with like a little bow. And I think people think this is sort of cheesy, but there's like science behind communication strategies. So like the garbage example would be, and like there's something that has been on my mind and I care a lot about our relationship where I want to bring it up. Right. So like, you're not just like coming in with like <laughs> full forward. Force, and then yeah. the vanilla is like, I'm feeling really frustrated. I feel like I'm doing more around the house and then ending it with it. Like, you know, obviously I care about you a lot, which is why I want to have this conversation. Yeah. So that's one. I mean, that's one of many things. That's a good relationship, but communication is like a huge, oh, it's huge everything and relational stuff. Oh, it's everything. And I, I've learned, especially over college, I feel like I learned that I need to start off a confrontational thing with, I, I feel, or if I'm upset, I start with, I, I feel <laughs> because okay. then they can't get on the defense and then they'll kind of be at your level. It's all about psychology. I feel like, and just understanding how people think because people are really quick to act. They don't, think before they speak in all instances you're driving on emotion and you're a right. lot of times it's really strong emotion and then it's how we learn to communicate what's been role modeled for us like a lot of right. this hasn't been taught to us so we're sort of like yeah. learning as we're doing um yeah and that's the thing I was gonna ask do you think a lot of the issues or not issues but just the things that come up in your sessions and with your clients is a lot of it stemmed from the lack of education or knowledge from childhood of how to deal with these things or how they were brought up so i think it's always a combination of nature and nurture right like there's a genetic component of like just right. our temperament like how we were um like our dna like we're all how we express ourselves I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I think you know where I'm getting at. Yes. And then like the nurture piece is um, like we are absolutely products of our environment. And a lot of our relational tendencies are rooted in our upbringings. It doesn't mean that they're like unable to be fixed or changed, but they provide like a really strong foundation mm. for how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others. And I think the question you had posed me was like, how, like if, nature and nurture affects like our emotions. And absolutely, because if you grew up in a house where it's not safe to express your feelings um, or it's not, or if you're immediately shut down, if your parents, you know, shut you down for, for speaking your truth or speaking your emotion, then like, what are you going to learn over time? That like, mm. I'm not going to say how I feel because I'm going to end up feeling rejected or unloved. Um, yeah. We do carry it that with us whether it's into our you know whatever type of relationship or on the other end of the spectrum we might learn that we have to have a really strong emotional reaction to get any attention exactly. so like that is also a learned behavior <laughs> so yeah I mean it's undeniable that our how we were raised who was in our environment it, it does play a big role in and how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to other people. Yeah, I was just so, I'm always so curious about that because 
I was adopted. So, and I don't know anything about my birth parents, but I really do feel like the environment and how I was brought up really affected how I turned out. Um, and I can't say, I don't know the other, how my birth parents were, but I just think it's so interesting because I feel like in a sense, I was this funny experiment because I am a lot like my mom and my dad and I learned how to communicate from them and how to treat other people and all these different things. And it's like, I probably would have turned out differently if I was in a household where I wasn't able to share my emotions or communicate with my parents or stuff like that. And there could be parts of your genetics too and parts of your temperament mm. that are really unique to you, Lily Grace, because they're not shared with your parents too. True. So sort of like this combination of like what you've learned from them, but also sort of what you've carried with you um, for who you are and where you came from. <laughs> Thanks. That's so interesting to me. I'm just always so curious about stuff like that. And in your own life, how do you focus on mental health? Yes. I knew you were going to ask this. <laughs> so, and I, I wanted actually to share this in terms of how I got into mental health, because I think there's also this stigma that like therapists can't divulge that they've had their own therapy, mm. which is sort of ridiculous because most people come into the helping profession because they've been helped in some way. Like I'd say like a, a really big portion of us mm. have gone through like our journeys. Um, so let me just say that like I had challenges and difficulties in my childhood um, that led me into some like early therapy and like early adolescence. Um, so that was like definitely a piece of my interest in the mental health world, um, just being supported by like an adult outside my family system. Um, so I wanted to answer this question by confiding in you and your podcast listeners that I still am in and out of my own mental health treatment. I, you know, I have a therapist I've been connected to for a long time, um, and she's somebody that I can reconnect with, um, and in fact, the telehealth piece for me was actually really important because I was postpartum with a new baby, like mm. right at the beginning of COVID. And I wouldn't think I wow. could have access to her in the same way. Um, so yeah, I am not um, shy to say that I think um, therapists can and should have their own therapists. So that's something that is really important to my mental health. Um, I have... I've worked hard to have a good support system. Mm. Um, it didn't just sort of come naturally, but I, um, especially being a transplant to central New Hampshire, I think mm. be really intentional about like right. finding a tribe um, of people. And it's not like a huge tribe, but I have close, you know, like friends and family members that I good. can lean on. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I think it's important to, for people to know that um, because it will help them be able to relate to you and to this podcast and to the topics. So that's really great. And what is one last piece of advice that you have for people trying to improve their own mental health? Just something very simple. <laughs> simple. Change is hard. Hmm. And I think oftentimes when we do like the same thing over and over and expect to feel different, um, certainly that is not always the case. So I think if I, if I send things simple in terms of mental health, I think it's like taking some risks to mm. do different and like, and that's why I think having a therapist in your corner can be really helpful because there is a lot of like risk taking and trying out like different ways of being. Um, but if that doesn't 
fit someone's lifestyle, then it's like, how do you find, how do you find like-minded people who you can relate to? Um, maybe it's like a group or like an online group. Like, you know, I think if someone's really struggling in isolation, that there needs to be some sort of connection to mm. um, people going through something similar, or maybe somebody who can be sort of trained to help you go through a difficult time. So I didn't really want to end this with like, find a therapist, but I guess that's sort of what <laughs> I'm saying. Um, you know, like, and again, it's not like mental health treatment isn't meant to necessarily last forever. Like sometimes it's just gaining a different perspective right. or thinking about something in a different way because um, it's really meant to sort of gain some knowledge and skills of yourself and then like to go out and, and practice it on your own. Oh, for sure. That's amazing. I hope, I know at least one person will get something out of this show. So thank you so much for sharing I, your story. Can your listeners know how we Sure, know? sure yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Lily Grace um, is a really talented graphic designer and she, um, made my logo for my mental health practice. Um, I had a couple iterations done by somebody else and it really just wasn't clicking. Um, but you created something beautiful Aww. that you're proud of. So I just, it was a joy to be able to see you again. Yeah, you as well. Thank you so much. I feel like it was so fun working with you and kind of helping you get your vision to fruition. And finally, how can people find you? All right, so I, my website is not created yet, sadly for me. That's okay because I am on a platform called Psychology Today. Um, so it's www.psychologytoday.com. It's an online resource for mental health um, practitioners. So if you Google my name, um, Michelle Cotillo, C-U-T-I-L-L-O, you always have up-to-date information about if I'm accepting new clients, um, where I'm practicing, and like what insurances I'm taking. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate your time. And Thank you for listening in. Hit that subscribe button if you enjoyed this episode. And if that inspired you, I would love if you shared on your social media platforms and tagged me at lilygrace underscore lifestyle on Instagram. Or you can visit my website at www.lilygraceyork.com to see my show notes and leave a review as well. I would love to hear your feedback, so please tell me everything and anything that you learned today. Stay classy, stay bossy, and stay listening.